You know, we've been uh, in a series in the book of Ephesians, and the title of the series has been, uh, Why Am I Here? And uh, the first Sunday we talked about how the reason why we're here is because it's an opportunity for us to get to know God, not just know about God, but to know God. In the second week, we talked about getting in the game and how we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Paul gets on his hobby horse again this week and talks about spiritual gifts. But two weeks ago, we talked about how one of the reasons why we're here is to really understand and comprehend the love of Christ in our lives. And today we want to talk about just bringing it, just see, because what Paul has done is he's kind of given us a basis to say, look, we were called by God and we've been created in Christ Jesus as his masterpiece for good works, but what position do we play on the team? And this morning he kind of gets into a little bit of this idea of what position do we play on the team. George Barnett did some research not too long ago, and he found out that 29% of all adults have never heard of spiritual gifts. He says 69% have heard of spiritual gifts, but do not know what their spiritual gift is. 1% of adults and 9% of senior pastors claim the gift of evangelism, but the most common gift claimed by adults is the gift of teaching, but only 5% claim that gift. So here's the issue. If two-thirds of the room sitting here this morning perhaps don't really know their spiritual gifts, hopefully this morning I'll give you a little bit of a fly-through That'll give you just some encouragement to think about what has God placed me in this body of Christ? What position do I really play? What's my calling? We're going to read about it in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you follow along with me as I read the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and you know, my Bible's at Hebrews chapter 4, that isn't going to work, right? So we'll go to Ephesians chapter 4. So follow along with me. As a prisoner for the Lord then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Notice he said the calling you have received, not what he's received, but what you have received. Every individual in the church, he's saying, you have a calling, and I want you to live it worthily. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit Through the bond of peace, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be teachers, pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is this, that every person who is a believer has a calling. 
Every person who is a believer has a calling. That word calling means to have a vocation, uh, something where you fit as a person who can work within the framework of the body of Christ. Sometimes we limit this matter of calling to maybe professionals like a pastor, uh, you know, missionary or whomever, but that's not true. Every one of you in the church this morning has been called by God to fit somehow in the body of Christ to build itself up in love and to bring it to greater unity. Remember, we were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Now, principle number two here, it is critical that we maintain a sense of unity in the church. And now he says that means being patient and humble and forbearing with each other's faults. But what he's also trying to say is, is that when we use our gifts, we are also building up the body and the unity of its faith. So when people are consistently, uh, I'm sorry, verse or principle number two, before I get ahead of myself, it is critical that we maintain a sense of unity in the church. And then principle number three is when people are consistently using their gifts, it brings unity to the church. You see, what happens is, is that the sad part about spiritual gifts is that there's been a lot of discussion and division over spiritual gifts over the years. And, and consequently, what's sad is, is that the spiritual gifts have been designed to bring unity when in reality, a lot of spiritual gifts discussion has brought division in the church. And it's a shame because that's not how God designed the church. How does that happen? How does that work? Well, I know in my own life, I experienced this with my staff in my church back in Phoenix years ago. When I had a number of people on my staff who became kind of disjointed and there wasn't really a sense of team because the, one of the, the executive pastor on our, our staff had really created a lot of problems amongst the staff. And so there was a lot of divisive, not divisiveness, but everybody was kind of working in their own silos, doing their own thing. And, and it was really sad to watch because we didn't feel like there was a great sense of unity or harmony on the staff at that point. But after I fired the guy who was causing, I thought, a lot of the disunity, I brought the staff together and we said, you know what? Sometimes we give people job descriptions that maybe don't fit their spiritual gifts. So let's just talk about that for a minute. And so I got the staff together and we started to kind of look at one by one in the staff and saying, you know what? Your gift is this and your gift is in leadership. Your gift over here is more in administration. Yours is more in the area of exhortation and so on and so forth. And I said, now we're going to kind of rearrange your job descriptions so that everybody can be able to use their gifts. And when they started using their gifts, we discovered that they were starting to cross-pollinate. When we had a youth pastor trying to create an event or, or a program, but he was not very good at administration, the administrative gifted person came alongside him and said, you know, let me help you. And pretty soon there was this synergy that started happening within the framework of the staff. And by the time I left, there was such great unity and harmony on the staff. Why? Because everybody was concentrating on their giftedness and they were all coming together, working together to encourage one another and build each other up. That's the way God has designed the church. So Paul mentions now that there are certain gifts right away, he says, that we need to think about when it comes to the church. And I would probably categorize these as equipping gifts, equipping gifts of the Spirit. And so he begins by mentioning the first gift as being an apostle. Now, if I had to describe an apostle based upon what I've studied over the years, that most people agree that an apostle was more of an itinerant type of preaching that went from place to place. It was often considered as sort of a a missionary gift. As you know, the apostles were told that they should go into all the world and preach the gospel, and they were given this great commission, just like we are. But they literally went out and did that cross-culturally and ethnically and around the world to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So an apostle gift, apostolic gift, would be more of this itinerant, 
itinerant traveling person who goes from place to place sharing the gospel of Christ cross-culturally. Secondly, he mentions the word prophet. Now, this word prophet really means today more, more than foretelling. It means more forthtelling. One, this is somebody who is able to take the scripture and be sort of confrontational, if you will, to a given group of people. It could be in a small group. It could be in the context of a church. Now, we don't see a whole lot of foretelling after the second century of the church. And the reason why is, for most scholars believe, is that we had the whole scripture then as a revelation to us, and so no longer did there need to be a foretelling of scripture or a foretelling of, of various uh, prophecies. Now, there are some people out there today in our world who claim to have this gift and are foretelling people's futures, which is kind of scary to me because people are, bent, are, are actually framing their lives around these so-called prophets, but it's scary because our true prophet scripture tells us is 100% accurate in their prophecy. And that's not always the case with a lot of our modern day foretellers out there. So I believe that primarily this gift is designed for the foretelling of scripture, not foretelling. Now, thirdly, he brings up the concept of an evangelist. Now, an evangelist is obviously somebody who has the primary role of bringing people to Christ. Pastor Dan and our staff is probably the consummate evangelist. But we also know that only 1% of people seem to have that gift. So if there are maybe 100 people sitting here today, maybe only one of you have that special gift that just seems to have the ability to share Christ with people and them responding in a very positive way. And yet, that doesn't let anybody off the hook because we're told to go. And the reason why we have the Holy Spirit, he said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost will come upon you. And what? And you shall be what? Witnesses. We're called. We're commissioned to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it takes more intentionality maybe for somebody who doesn't have the gift of evangelism. But we're not off the hook. I, I know of pastors and I know of quote, mature spiritual people that say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't really need to share the gospel. Well, that's baloney. We're all called to be evangelists, and yet we do see that there is a special gift of being able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the fourth one. He talks about pastors. These are the people that we would equate with the word pastor shepherd of a given flock. It's people who don't necessarily itinerantly preach all over the country, but they localize their ministry amongst a group of people where they can actually shepherd them and encourage them and love on them and be that kind of protector of a mini flock, whether it's a small flock, a Bible study or a small group, or whether it's the church. But a pastoral gift is really critical, especially for a pastor, okay, of a minister. Okay, here's number five. He talks about the gift of teaching. And this doesn't really carry the connotation of a shepherd, but what it does do, it says this is a person who is able to really clearly instruct people in the word of God in a very effective way. And you can be a a really godly teacher, a gifted teacher to teach your children at home. You can be a teacher within the framework of a small group, but teaching is a critical gift. Now, I share these five because I believe all of these five are mentioned here by Paul because he says, these are the gifts that equip the church to do the works of service. So he's saying, these are equipping gifts. 
that God has given in the church. You may have one of those equipping gifts. And as we fly by these, I'm hoping that you'll begin to identify perhaps with some of these and say, hmm, maybe that's me. Maybe that's how, what's God calling me to do. Okay. So these are, those are the five, what I would consider equipping gifts. Now there are other places in scripture that talk about spiritual gifts. One of them is in first Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to walk through those because now I begin to see a change, a shift a little bit from equipping gifts to what I would call helping gifts, helping gifts. And so the first one that's mentioned by Paul in first Corinthians 12 is the gift of wisdom. This is a person who is able to really give wise advice. You know, there, there's some people in your life that you know that you want to, when you want to get advice, you just seem, they just seem to have this wisdom, this depth of understanding, this, this experience. And you go to them and you get this wise counsel from them. Generally, a lot of times they can be older, but not necessarily. These are people who have that, that gift. Uh, one young man I think that has that gift is our, our worship pastor, Jamie. I feel like God's given him a gift of wisdom even at his young, young age. Wisdom is really an incredibly great gift to have. Here's the second one Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, knowledge is also a gift. This is a person that just seems to have a hunger and desire to know all the details and the ins and outs of scripture. And it's usually attacks that and is intelligent and maybe it has a little bit intellectual and they, they have just, they're, they're able to kind of have a great grasp of scripture and things there that, that they can share uh, to other people that may not have the wisdom attached to it or the life experience, but they they just have this deep desire and hunger to know more. Here's number three, the gift of faith. Somebody who consistently, I believe, has the gift of faith, trusts God, and is not afraid to just step out and take a risk. Think of our, our friend here, uh, Tim, that's sitting here, Tim Parker, and how he stepped out to start this Freedom Center and, and to see how God has, has taken this Freedom Center and, and made it into something that God is continually growing and, and multiplying and encouraging and going into Haiti and helping with an orphanage. These are people that just seem to be able to step out and take a risk, and if they fail, it's okay because they just feel like God is prompting them to take that step. And maybe you're that kind of a person where you've stepped out in faith in your life, and God has blessed that and honored that. Here's number four. He talks about the gift of healing. Now, this, I think, is really important to realize that when we're talking about the gift of healing, oftentimes we limit it to just the physical side of things, but I think that there is an emotional and spiritual healing that can happen in people's lives, and people oftentimes can come alongside and be a real uh, instrument of God to bring healing, whether it's maybe physically or spiritually or emotionally. I'll never forget a, a guy in our church back in Wisconsin years and years ago who had cerebral palsy, and he kept claiming that God was going to heal him. And so one day he said, I'm going to stay in church until God heals me. And so he stayed in church that Sunday morning, and all day long he prayed for healing of his cerebral palsy. And I remember coming back to church that evening and wondering, oh, what's going to happen if he doesn't get healed? And when everybody approached him, he was just delighted. He just had a gleam in his eye and he was so excited. And yet the cerebral palsy was still there. And we saying, hey, what's up? And he said, God did heal me. He healed me from the inside. He healed me from the inside. And sometimes I've noticed too that healing can also be accompanied with this gift of discernment because I know in my own life, I've seen God use me to pray over somebody and they've been miraculously healed. But I sensed in my spirit that God was saying that in this particular case, God wants to heal this person. 
And there's been other times I've prayed for people and I've not sensed that in my own life. And consequently, they were not healed physically from that particular disease or whatever. But, you know, when I think about healing again, I got to go back to what Paul said before. He said, I want to pray for every person, no matter what they're going through, that they would be strengthened in their inner man. Because Paul realized that the inner man was far more important than the outer man. But healing is taking place, and we know that people have been given that gift, and we also know that there have been miraculous healings in people's lives, and some of you could even testify to that in your own life. So then there's also the gift of miracles, and uh, and I think when we read about miracles, we see a lot of that done by Christ and the apostles. And yet, you know, I haven't seen or read a whole lot about people who have this gift in our culture today, but I have read about it a lot overseas where God has been using that to spread the gospel. And I think a lot of times the reason why miracles were done was so that God display his reality in people's lives so that they would come and know Christ. So the gift of miracles is there. Then finally, he, or he also talks about this gift of discernment. And maybe you have that gift this morning. And this is a person who can interpret whether something is done in the spirit or not in the spirit. I had a lady in my church in Phoenix who just had this gift. It was amazing because if I was dealing with somebody in counseling or somebody in the church, she just kind of knew if this was more a Satan thing or a demonic thing or a spiritual issue or whether it was not of the spirit or was was or wasn't a part of the spirit. And so these kinds of people would oftentimes uh, come into my life and they were just so helpful when you're trying to work through counseling or people's lives. And you may have that gift where you just kind of know, you know, now something's wrong. Wrong here. There's some thing intuitively in my spirit that doesn't doesn't bear with with God's spirit. There's something wrong, and there's something right about this, and something wrong about that. So the gift of discernment. Maybe some of you perhaps have that. Then the one that's somewhat controversial: the the ability to speak in an unknown language. That was given early at Pentecost, if you remember when the apostles were wanting to share the gospel and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in languages unknown to them, but known to those people out there so that they could hear the gospel in their own language. And that was primarily the essence of that gift. However, we do see some evidence in scripture that there might be this angelic language that some of you have experienced in your own personal lives where your spirit has been edified, being able to have this private prayer language that God has given you. I don't particularly have that special anointing, if you will, but nonetheless, there are some people who enjoy that. But I do remind us of the fact that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, God makes it clear that edification includes the mind and the spirit, and that's why he's making it very clear that when tongues are spoken in a church assembly, that there's somebody there to interpret it because otherwise maybe your spirit might be edified, but your mind isn't. And true edification, what he says here, just descriptively or definitively is the edification of the mind and the heart. Both of those have to be engaged. And so when we talk about speaking in tongues, it's obviously one that's a little controversial, but I just hope that uh, I've given some clarity to that this morning. Let's move on to interpretation. That is a critical part because in the early days of the church, when somebody spoke in an unknown language, it was obvious that in a local assembly, people had no clue what they were being, what was being said. And for all they knew, it could be blasphemy. So it was critical that somebody in the audience, somebody was in the church that was able to say, you know what, I speak that language and this is what he's saying so that their minds could be edified as well as their spirit. So the gift of interpretation was a critical component, especially in the early church and especially to lack confusion whenever the gift of tongues was being expressed. Here's number, the next one is the gift of serving. 
This is a classic gift that a lot of people have. You know, our, our brother Mark Kirkendall has this gift, I do believe, and it's a person who just loves to work behind the scenes. It's a person that just doesn't need a lot of accolades or a lot of, uh, of attaboys because they just sense that this is what God's called me to do. I, I don't need all of that attaboy stuff. I, I just enjoy working behind the scenes, helping people, coming alongside people, working with my hands, whatever that looks like. The gift of serving is such a critical gift. And again, this is one of the reasons why I call these helping gifts. Then there's the gift of encouragement. Some people would call it the gift of exhortation. This is somebody that just knows how to say the right thing at the right time. Have you noticed that? People just that are really encouraging, uplifting. People who come alongside you and feel like there's their, they're their Barnabas in your life. Where they can say, you know what, brother, I just love you and I just so appreciate you. Uh, people who can often speak the truth, but be able to speak the truth in love. Because it's not all about just saying nice things and placating people and patronizing people. This is a person who has this ability to somehow bring the truth, but bring it in love. Here's this next one. He talks about the gift of generosity. This is a person who just has a way to give freely of himself and his time and his talents and his finances. It's bigger than just money. This is a person that just feels like God is compelling me to do this, not out of guilt, not out of compulsion. I just love giving. I just love to, to, to share what I have, whatever it is. I know my wife has that gift, and sometimes it drives me crazy because I think she's too generous, but, but I'm so thankful for her because it keeps good balance in our relationship. But the gift of generosity is so critical in the church. Don't you wish everybody had the gift of generosity? Then we never have to take an offering, right? So anyways, then there's the gift of leadership that he talks about. And this is a person who is often maybe somewhat visionary. And by the way, if they have the gift of leadership, they usually have followers, you know, if somebody's saying, I have the gift of leadership but have no followers, something's wrong with this picture, right? So somebody who has a gift of leadership is sort of this organized, administrative, strategic, goals type of personality that seems to be able to take a group of people and move them forward. So the gift of leadership, maybe you have that gift. Maybe God is using you, whether it's in your home or at your workplace or in the church where God is saying, you know, you have this somewhat this ability, and so... Step up, bring it, as we said in the video. Then there's the gift of mercy. There's a lot of people who have this gift, I believe, and thank God for that because there are so many needs, so many hurts, so many wounded people, and see people with the gift of mercy just seem to have the ability to be sensitive and deeply concerned and compassionate for people who are hurting. And maybe that's you. You just feel like, you know, I just, you know, it just... Just to think about the, the, the folks in Oregon right now in Roseburg and think about, well, what can I do? What can I do? Can I pray for them? Can I come alongside them? Is there something that I can do to encourage them? Because the gift of mercy just seems to be those especially who are hurting. And then finally, which is a little bit disputed by some, but I would include the gift of hospitality that's mentioned in First Peter chapter 4. But scripture says there to practice hospitality, and yet some people believe that that's also a gift. And, and I do too. I, I really do. I think, but when we think about hospitality, we're not talking about being hospitable to people who are like-minded, who people we enjoy hanging out with. This is hospitality to strangers. This is where people have this ability to reach out to people who we don't know, never met before, but we somehow embrace them and love them and bring them into our lives. And so the gift of hospitality. Now, I'm not sure all the gifts are mentioned in Scripture. I've studied this for years, and I'm not sure all the gifts are mentioned, but there's about 19 that are 
pretty clearly expressed. I mean, some would also incre- inc- uh, include the gift of craftsmanship, especially when you go back into the book of Nehemiah and see how people contributed their gifts to the building of the wall, building of the temple, and so on and so forth. But these are at least some that we've flown by here a little bit to give you kind of a way to say, where do I fit? What's my calling? What position do I play in the body of Christ? Okay? Now, what I want to remind us again, principle number four, is that the equipping gifts are designed to bring people to maturity by encouraging the ones being equipped to do the work. So my job as a pastor, if you will, is to equip you to bring you to maturity so that you do the work. That's what I'm trying to do this morning is to try to encourage you, come on, do the work. And I want to do the best job as I can to equip you. So I'm at least giving you the positions you can play on the team. And hopefully that gives you a little bit more encouragement to say, where do I fit? And generally, when we know this, there's also that passion and your personality play a role in your spiritual gifts. And so what gets you up in the morning? What excites you? What energizes you? What gets you going? What, what, what turns your crank? And those oftentimes are the, is the way God has wired us to encourage and, and build the body up in Christ. Now, what's really interesting here is that what my job is as a pastor is to equip you to bring you to maturity Because it says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do this work and to build up the church, the body of Christ, until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature and full grown in the Lord, measuring up to the full stature of Christ. You see, the problem in the church today a lot of times is that we've professionalized ministry, and so we hire another person on staff, another person on staff, and we'll hire the professional to do it. And really, what that professional is supposed to be doing is equipping you to do it. And consequently, sometimes when people are really gifted in that area, they discourage people from getting involved because they do it so well, nobody wants to step up because they can't do it as well as the professional. Well, that's nonsense according to what Scripture is telling us here. You're to do the work. You're the person that needs to step up. You're the one that needs to be worthy of your calling. And if I get in the way of that, I'm doing the wrong thing. So if I do it all, I don't give you the chance to really understand what it is to contribute to the body and for you to grow up. I hope we get that. So I thought about this and I thought, well, what does maturity look like? Well, Paul's sort of descriptive of that in verse 13, where he said, number one, if you're mature, one of your greatest priorities is to create unity of the faith. I've discovered over the years as being a pastor that the people that are the most divisive are the most immature in their faith in the church. Because they have some sort of agenda, something they're camping on, something that's out of balance in their life, and they want, to ad- ad- they want us to adhere to their agenda and create all this division, when in reality, if they're really mature, they're going to say, what brings the greatest amount of unity in the church? That's what I would call somebody who has a mature faith. Secondly, they're no longer a double-minded person. Because he's saying here that if you're really grounded in your faith, there is this maturity in your life that says, look, I know what I believe. I have this conviction based upon the word of God. And when some wind of doctrine or some extra teaching or some deceptive teaching that comes around the corner, that I'm not always just thrown into a tizzy, that I'm not just so out of balance that, that I just uh, I get become double-minded and, and I get influenced by the wrong kind of thinking. So he's saying here, a mature person knows what he believes and he knows why he believes it. So when all these other teachings come along, it doesn't just throw him into a complete double-mindedness. 
And then thirdly, he says that a, a mature Christian is able to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a saying here that I brought up the first hour, and you've probably heard this before, but it says this, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. You want to write that down? Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. One of the things I hope as I convey as your teaching pastor is that I'm giving you truth, but I'm giving it to you in love. Because sometimes truth can be pretty confrontational. And I know that I've been described on our team or on our staff as the guy with the velvet hammer. So, um, so, uh, but I feel like that's a compliment because I feel like that's what scripture is. It's sort of a velvet hammer. You know, it teaches us and confronts us and motivates us and wants us to change and be transformed. And yet it's done with grace. It's done with love. It's done with humility. And I trust that that's a real, the way you are in your life so that you're speaking the truth in love. Because when you do that, you grow up, it says, and it forces other people to grow up and become more mature. So a mature person speaks the truth in love. And finally, a mature person is somebody who does their part of the work. See, what I've discovered, and I know you probably have too, when you are doing the work, you grow far more than just sitting there watching somebody else do the work, right? When you're have to step up and teach, or when you're the one that has to step up and lead, when you're the one that steps up and serves, that's when you grow. That's when you mature. That's when you get it together. But if you sit there and become a spectator, how are you going to grow? When you get into the trench and you start experiencing these things, it forces you to grow. It forces you to step up. So it's obviously a lot safer to sit back and be a spectator. But some of you might say, well, I haven't grown for a long period of time. Well, maybe it's because you've not stepped up and you've not decided what position you're going to play in the team and you're not going for it. You're not bringing it, if you will. So it's real critical that somebody who does their part of the work, and if we're not doing our part of the work, we're not going to grow. It's as simple as that. And so principle number five, there is no better way to grow in your faith and the faith of others than to do the work, than to bring it. Verse 16 says, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So what is your calling this morning? What has God called you to do? And what's interesting, somebody came up to me after the first service, and I really agree with this, that sometimes God calls us and we say, yeah, but I don't know if I have that gift. Well, let me just say this. When God calls you, he doesn't call us that he doesn't equip us, right? He's not going to call us to do something that we can't do because it's all about him, not about us. Now, sometimes we say, well, I want to figure out what my calling is before I do it. Well, that's okay. You can go that route, and that's what we're trying to do today is kind of help you discern perhaps maybe what your calling is. But sometimes for us, it's ignorance is bliss. You know, well, if I don't know my calling, I don't know what my gift is, which we say 69% of people don't know, that I don't have to get involved, and I'm cool. Right? Yeah, thank you. But, but, but that's the way a lot of us think. We, maybe we don't think it out loud, but in reality, you know, if I really don't know what I know what to do, and I'm not sure what I'm really passionate about, so I just kind of sit there soaking sour in the church. And and when you're not playing the position, you're not contributing to the health of the body, you're not contributing to the unity of the body, and you're not maturing yourself. You see what I'm saying? 
That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And so what is your calling? What has God called you to do? And it's really important if you don't know to go on that journey and say, God, I want to know what you want me to do. Because I know the best way for me to grow is to really get involved, to do something. Whether it's in your small group, you can manifest that gift, or whether it's in the church, or whether it's in your workplace, or whether it's in your neighborhood, it doesn't really matter because what your passion and calling is, God wants to use no matter where it is because ultimately it does build the body of Christ. Secondly, this is really important because one of the ways you can discern whether you've been playing the position that God has called you, how much have you grown this past year? Where has God taken you this past year? I just met with eight pastors down in Phoenix, and we talked about the five characteristics of a pastor who can be resilient in their ministry and finish well. And the first one on the list that every pastor agreed upon but often doesn't do, and that is what we say is soul care. And soul care means is that I am doing enough in my life where I'm feeding my spirit that I'm growing spiritually. And sometimes pastors get in a rut of so busy doing, they're not being, and so they're not growing in their own spiritual life. Well, how are they supposed to take people where they're not going? So the point I want to make to you this morning is that are you growing and can you identify spiritual growth in your life this past year? And I'll guarantee that if you've, not, if you've not seen much spiritual growth in your life, probably it's because you've been more of a spectator than being in the game. I'm getting passionate here. Hang on with me, folks. So what do you think your gifts are? I would encourage you as you get into your small groups this week, your community groups, it might be kind of fun to, to maybe ask the group, say, what do you think? Where, what, what do you think I feel like I, where do you think I can fit? That's my goal that was this morning is to encourage you, no matter what it is, to at least step out of your comfort zone and try something. I, I want to close with a parable that I found this week that I thought was really kind of cool. So I'm going to read it to you this morning. It's called The Parable About a Painter Who Reflects the Gifts of the Spirit. Here's what it says. Once upon a time, there was a famous house builder and painter. After designing the homes, he would then build and paint them. As a painter, he was such an amazing artist that he didn't even need drop cloths. I'd love to see a guy like that. He had steady hand, and he was finicky about using good brushes and quality paint, so there were no drips, just tight, trim lines. One day, he was, he would, he was designing and building and painting homes all by himself. That's what he normally did, and he did it with his own hands. But then one day, he had this remarkable idea. He said, as he was standing by one of his houses, he saw a bunch of elementary kids coming home from school. They were minding their own business and carrying their backpacks until he shouted, hey, kids, when they looked up startled, because everyone knew in town about his amazing skills, he asked them a surprising question. How would you like to do some painting? You mean us? Yeah, he said what he said. I'll give each of you a bucket of paint and a brush and you can paint my house do you want to give it a try? They squealed with delight. The painter nodded as he said, yep, this is for real. Cool, the kid said. He opened up the back of his truck and pulled out a load of brushes and paint cans and then pried open the paint cans and they started splashing paint on the garage door. They got paint on the sidewalk too and some on each other, but they also got a lot of paint on the house, all different colors, especially on the parts of the house that were under four feet high. 
As other kids came by the sidewalk, they asked, can we do that too? And they joined in in about an hour. Most of the first floor was now covered with paint. The house painter's neighbors came over after dinner and took it all in. What's going on, they asked. Another blurted out, look, I got to be honest. Your house looks like a tornado ripped through Sherwin-Williams. What are you thinking? Well, the house painter said, of course, I could have painted this house all by myself, but I've always built and painted houses in order to bring joy to others. So based on that goal, this is the most beautiful house I've ever made. Then dozens of their friends will want to come to this house. They'll bring their friends to show what they've painted. And each one will say, this is the home of the master painter and builder, but it's also our house. In the same way, when God the Father, the master creator and painter of the world, pours out his Holy Spirit on his followers, he hands every single one of us a can of paint and a brush, and he says, go to work, use your gifts, and let's paint a beautiful house for the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, every one person in this room, young or old, has a can of paint and a brush. And when you created them, you said you created a masterpiece. And now it's our job to take our bucket of paint and our brush and bring it. God, that's your desire. And I pray that this morning that at least one or some are more motivated than ever to say, God, what is it you want me to do? What are you calling me to do? Because God, I want to make a difference because this is your house. people come by cornerstone in the days that are ahead. May they see paint splashed all over the walls because people are willing to jump in and bring it. For Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.